right, so we are in Ruth chapter 1 again. I know I read it last week, but we use it just kind of as an overview of what's happening in the, the whole book and kind of talked about just a good introduction to uh, the story and the history and, and the seeing God's providence throughout the book of Ruth. But today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 again. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, if not, it'll be up on the screen. You can follow along there. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Oh, he's a wise guy with that elder. I tell you what. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and went on, on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each one of you to, your mother, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, no, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. 
who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its timeless truths. We thank you for preserving it for us so that we can take time to look at it and see how you work your hand of providence in the lives of of those going through a tragedy. Father, we pray that as we we, we, we take time to just kind of think about that and, and to ponder that, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, you would teach us to seek out your mercies in tragedies that befall us. You would teach us to look to you above all things. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So last week I introduced the book and the story of Ruth, right? We're going to dig a little deeper into chapter one this week. So uh, what I want us to see this week and this time around is, is God's providential work that's at play here, right? There are some mysterial, mysterious mercies happening in this chapter. Uh, there are odd things going on. And, and, and the thing is, is we look at these mercies, they don't necessarily look very merciful in the beginning. They, they look rough. Verses 1 through 5, we, we get this introduction. We learn that, that this is taking place during the time of the judges, Right? This is a time of spiritual, social, and political unrest in Israel. Right? It, it is just cats and dogs and, and, and craziness happening all over everywhere. Right? It, it's, it's kind of the, the Israel's time of the Wild West, so to speak. Right? The people had, had priorly, or prior to this had looked to, to Moses and to Joshua as their leadership, and now they were without a God-appointed central leader. And, and the people want a king who will give them rest. They will not find that king until David, and even when they find David, that rest doesn't last long for them. The people here are also experiencing a famine. Uh, Sometimes in Scripture we see that famines can be a divine scourge on the people for their unfaithfulness to God. Sometimes famines are just a way for God to advance His divine purposes. If we think about the story of Joseph and Israel, there was a famine, and, and all the brothers came to Egypt, and they discovered that Joseph hadn't been killed, and all of those things. That famine actually saved the people of Israel. We can think about that story in Scripture. I think it's interesting that God has, has set a famine upon Bethlehem, right? that this famine is taking place there. Bethlehem means house of bread or, or house of food. There's not enough food in the house of food, right? Bethlehem is typically a very fertile area for farming, yet here we see food lacking. So Elimelech decides to sojourn into Moab to escape the famine, right? He chooses to be this immigrant in a foreign country in hopes of a, of a more promising tomorrow. He's apparently desperate enough in his desire for a better tomorrow that he travels to a country that's an enemy to the people of Israel, and while they reside in, in Moab, Malon and Kilion come up to an age in which they're old enough to take on wives, and, and they marry Moabite women. Malon marries Ruth, Kilion marries Orpah, right? Now, Moabite women are an interesting lot in, in Scripture. They are well known in Scripture for turning men of Israel away from Yahweh and to the gods of Moab. Um, those gods of Moab most often were Molech, and Chamosh. Now, I want us to notice something here as we look at this. The initial intent here is the family to sojourn, to just stay a little while until their fortunes changed. 
But what we see is that they're really settling in. Right? Malon and Kilion get married. They live in Moab 10 years. Uh, the phrase that we translate here, lived in the ESV, can also be translated as remained or settled down. And then moving from Israel, we see the family has definitely has the potential for moving away and from serving God. They have become accustomed to and, and well acquainted with life in Moab, including taking those Moabite daughters as, or, or wives as, as, as daughters-in-law. But then we see Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion die. Naomi is left uh, without her two sons and without her husband. She's the last remaining survivor in the family. Now, in a modern time, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Okay, so she's going to get her widow's pension, right? She might be the heir to, to whatever the boys had. They may have had it left in their mama's name. That's not the case in the ancient Near East, right? She is literally the last remaining survivor in the family. Elimelech has no immediate living brothers. So Naomi is left now in a foreign country with no one to care for her. This is a very precarious situation for a woman of this time period to be in. She has no means of support, and she needs a community to help her. While they may have been accustomed to life in Moab, and they may have settled down in Moab, the Moabites were with no obligation to help Naomi, and so she's in a dire situation. And she makes the decision then to move back to Bethlehem, right? The word return there, shub, in Hebrew is used 12 different times in this chapter. And it's this idea of turning and going. She's going to return. She's going to go from one thing to another, one place to another as she goes. What she's heard is that God has, has shown favor on the land and its people. There's going to be a harvest Food and bread will once again be available in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And she knows that there is family back. She's, they're Epaphrathites of Judah, and that means there's cousins, there's people there. Even though Elimelech has no siblings, there are people there who could care for her. She's more likely as a Jewish woman to be cared for by Jews than she would be Moabites. And so she decides to leave. And we see this closeness with Naomi and her daughter, daughters-in-law, right? She calls them daughters, showing that closeness, showing that attachment. She tells them to return to their mother's houses. These must be young women. We know they're young enough to, to bear children, but they must be young widows. She understands that mother's role in helping a daughter prepare for marriage and motherhood. And she wishes these young widows... Uh, Orpah and Ruth to have just that. She wants them to remarry. She wants them to have families of their own. She wants them to have the stability and the security that families provide in the ancient Near East. And by the way, that families provide today. There is stability. There is security there. This is a stability and a security that Naomi is now missing as a widow who has no sons. And she even foreshadows an idea that we're going to see coming up later in the book here. She foreshadows this idea of a, of a kinsman redeemer. 
the idea of this leveret marriage, right? She asks this rhetorical question to, to Orpah and to Ruth, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? Right? Even if I had kids tonight, I got pregnant tonight, would you wait until these boys were old enough to be your husband so that you could stay with me? Does that even make sense to you? Is what she's asking. In this question, Naomi's reminding Ruth and Orpah that she is too old to conceive, and even if she did, it would be a long time before the ladies could marry any of Naomi's sons. And it pains Naomi to put the, that, that Ruth and Orpah are, are, are in this situation. Right? She, she's looking at this difficult situation, this tragedy that has befallen her life. She looks at the situation as, as coming from the hand of God. She's not necessarily blaming God, but she's not letting him off the hook for what is happening here. Naomi is distressed that Ruth and Orpah are, are caught in God's enmity towards Ruth or towards Naomi. Right? What Naomi doesn't get is the full picture yet. She doesn't see everything that God's doing. Orpah hears Naomi, kisses her goodbye, taking the advice from her mother-in-law. She gets it. Yeah, I'm a young widow. I'm still of marrying age. I still bear children. If I go home to mom and dad, mom and dad will find me another husband. I can have the security that she's missing. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi and will not forsake her. Ruth, in her commitment to Naomi, converts to Yahweh worship. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And, and she binds herself to Naomi with an oath. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's interesting because what Ruth has done is she has invited the Lord's punishment upon herself if she is unfaithful to Naomi. She has sworn an oath in the name of Yahweh, God. She fully owns him as her God now. There are no other gods for her at this moment. And so they leave. And when the ladies arrive in Bethlehem, they, they quickly become the talk of the town, right? Naomi is so distressed, she asks people to refer to her as Mara instead of Naomi. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. She was named pleasant. Mara in Hebrew means bitter. She wants to be called bitter because of what the Lord has done in her life. She's falling into this like Job's friends kind of thinking pattern, right? She feels that God has done all that he has done because she has done some, own, or some unknown wrong in her life. But what Naomi doesn't see is God's mercy working in her life. See, God's mercy is, is at work even when we seek fulfillment in wrong things, right? A famine strikes the land. Elimelech 
the Elimelech family makes a decision to, to sojourn into Moab, even though Moab is a country that introduces the people of Israel to idolatry every time they get involved with Moab. Naomi and, and Elimelech's boys marry Moabite girls, even though Moabite women don't just woo Israelite boys, they woo them away from God. They woo them away from faithfulness to the one who created them. We don't know what the, the family conversations were like between Naomi and Elimelech. But we do know a choice was made to leave Israel. We know that, that marrying women who worship foreign gods was, was tolerated. We know that this was also in the time of the judges. Two times in the book of Judges it is said that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. At the opening of the book of Ruth, and we look at those first few little verses there, it appears that Elimelech and Naomi were no different than the other Israelites at this time. There was no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes. See, Elimelech and Naomi were looking for some fulfillment in material things. And we, get, we can sympathize here. It would appear that they had endured a famine quite a while before they moved. Malon's name means sickness. Kilion's name means wasting. It would take a lot for a man whose name means God is my king and a woman whose name means pleasant to name their kids sickness and wasting. To look around you and see that's what's taking place. And you have two sons. What well, should be a very joyous moment. And you look at them and you go, sickness, wasting. It would seem that maybe they tried to wait the famine out. And they eventually sought something different when they thought the Lord was not present in their famine-stricken life. But God was working mercifully in that. He's going to bring about things as we look through the story of Ruth that show us this was a merciful move on behalf of our God. God is, God's mercy is at work even when we seek fulfillment in the wrong people. I want us to look at something here. Naomi places her trust in Elimelech. And she places her trust in Malon, and she places her trust in Kilion to care for her. Husbands and sons, care for your wives and daughters and your mothers. That is good and that is noble. But make sure that there are provisions for something in case something happens to you. She had placed her trust in Elimelech and Malon and Kilion to care for her. Yet then Elimelech and Malon and Kilion placed their trust, unfortunately, in the people and in the land of Moab for their needs. They missed placing their trust in the Lord. They missed that. So what does Naomi do? To look at it and kind of say that she blames God, right? For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's not really blaming as much as she's just 
not letting him off the hook. She sees her life as a blueprint made by God. He is in control. And when she and Elimelech tried to take control away from him, he had to find a way to regain control. She recognizes that here. He is the Lord who gives and he is the Lord who takes away. He has given rain and brought food back to Bethlehem, but he has also taken from Naomi her husband and her sons. When I think about this situation, it reminds me of, of a friend of mine who had an amazing marriage. They were the kind of couple that you would, you would look at and think, this is the kind of marriage I want. They were, they were romantic with each other. They were flirty with each other. They loved the Lord. They served God. They served the church together. They were happy and enjoying everything that life was bringing them. And then one day the wife was killed in a tragic accident. And I don't remember the exact situation, but I remember it was after the funeral, and the, and the friend of mine and I were just together talking, just the two of us. And he just really quietly said to me in that moment, you know, I think God took my wife from me because I valued my relationship with her more than my relationship with him. That's a tough acknowledgement. Naomi is kind of in that spot. She's making this acknowledgement of God took something away from me because I have done something somewhere against my God. See, there, there is some mercy in tragedy when we are able to reflect and examine our lives before God. God is saying, you wanted satisfaction in Moab, not satisfaction in me. I'm putting a stop to that, even if it means tragedy and a bleak outlook. We need to also understand that God's mercy is at work and guides us to see his blessings. Naomi is parting ways with her daughters-in-law, right? Orpah takes the golden parachute and she decides to stay in Moab. Ruth does not. Ruth clings to Naomi and says, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. There is a lot happening when Ruth says this. Right? I've already mentioned that, that she's converting to Yahweh worship. She's renouncing all of her previous life in Moab. But what she says echoes what God told Abraham in his covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. The fact that, that Ruth, a woman from, Moabite, or from Moab, a, a people who were forbidden to even enter God's sanctuary, a people who, according to the book of Deuteronomy, are, are doomed for destruction, has now converted to Yahweh worship and is now part of a covenant people, God is also, is also a fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham in the covenant that all the peoples of the world will be blessed by God through the covenant with Israel. We're seeing things happening here. See, Naomi sees the Lord actively bringing about the deaths of her husband and sons, as well as being burdened now with a Moabite companion, as being this judgment against her for leaving Israel and going to Moab. Understand, we're all going to have tragedies in our lives. Right? Your tragedy may not be a judgment for your sin. 
It could be. But you don't know, especially if you're striving to live earnestly for God and seeking to please Him. This is one of the the weird mysteries of our salvation. This is one of the weird mysteries of how our God works. This is part of the mystery of how God's love for His people is. See, God's love is never constrained or restrained by our actions. God has chosen from all eternity to set His love on His people forever. And the sovereign God who besets tragedies remains worthy of worship and praise. And it is hard sometimes to accept. This is. This is a hard thing to accept. And, and not everyone can accept the God of Naomi here who has beset a tragedy on her or the God of Job who beset a tragedy on him. Right? It is hard sometimes to accept a God who brings tragedy. But we must remember that the God who brings tragedy is the same God who brought Jesus as well. And God was pleased to bruise Jesus, his son, on the cross. When you think about Jesus on the cross and and his death that satisfies God's wrath against the sins we have committed... When you think of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that offers life after death and power over sin to those who believe, when you repent and turn your life over to Christ, then, then you start to begin to understand and experience that God gives mercy through tragedies. And He has since eternity past. This is the God we need to learn and love all the more. He is the only one who can bring you grace through pain. He's the only one who can bring you grace while you're in pain. As we look at this too, we also see that God's mercies are at work when believers rest in His blessings. You look at the end there. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi is blind to God working in her life right now. She doesn't see at all how he is at play. God leads them back to Bethlehem at the time of a barley harvest. This is the best possible time for her to find provision back in Israel. The writer of Ruth is showing us, the readers, that tragedy and mercy go hand in hand for followers of God. They are two sides of the same coin. Tragedy is the, is the merciful, powerful, holy, righteous working of a good and holy God. Just like Naomi, we have received nothing in life that is not a merciful gift from our God. So we look at this. This is a lot of information to take in. How do we apply it? First thing, self-examination during a tragedy is good. Self-examination at any time is good, but it's, it's also good during a tragedy. But we need to be well to remember that God is good and merciful when we do some self-examination, especially in the midst of a tragedy. 
See, if we do not remember that God is good and merciful, that we could spend the rest of our earthly time looking for sin behind every single sadness we experience, looking for sin behind every single pain we experience, every single thing that could set, could, could set us off on our, on our normal experience. We need to remember that in Christ we are free. But if we do discover sin during our self-examination, whether it's self-examination during tragedy or just a self-examination time, we need to understand that, especially during that time of tragedy, that may not be the result of that specific sin. It may just be something that was revealed to us that we saw. Tragedy in your life is about bringing you closer to God. And it's about strengthening your journey with Him. Second, when it comes to walking with God, think about an open-ended journey rather than a plotted course with common sense outcomes. Our God is a God whose common sense doesn't look like our earthly common sense. That's hard for sometimes for us to remember. We can read a lot of things in Scripture, and we can see a lot of promises in Scripture, but nowhere in Scripture do we see a promised certainty of the outcomes we desire. Sure, Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. And Matthew 20, 28, at the end, Jesus reminds us that He promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And those scriptures are completely true. But neither one promises a specific outcome or a specific desire. They promise the presence of the Lord. They promise His guidance no matter what. His presence and His guidance should be sufficient for us. We should let Him determine our outcomes. Let Him drive our desires. That should be sufficient for us. Third, during your trials and tragedies, you should plan to be a faithful participant in your local church community. I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a tough one. As people, we like to weather tough times alone. We think, we got this, even when we don't got this. We don't want to let people get too close. They'll see our weaknesses. And yes, that is true. They will see our weaknesses. They will also see the strength of the Lord working in our lives when we let them get that close and they see our weaknesses. And this is a lesson I learned from experience. I have been one of those families whose tragedy showed up on the front page of the newspaper and on the local evening news. I've loaded a loved one into a med evac helicopter. I've been asked by a mortician, are we planning one funeral or are we planning two? But I stuck with my church family. I stuck with being an active participant in the congregation. I made mistakes. I made grievous errors in that time. But here's what I know and what I've learned that I know that a church family who really loves you, who knows your tragedy, will be forgiving, and they will be gracious, and they will be merciful. Please allow your brothers and sisters in Christ that opportunity. 
allow them the opportunity to show that you forgiveness, to show you grace, to show you mercy. Let them grow in forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Let them grow in love as they help you grow through your tragedy. In Ruth chapter 1, we see that the believer who seeks provision outside of the Lord receives mercy and kindness when the Lord disciplines them and brings them back to Him. This story starts off with a tragic beginning, but we see the mercies of God throughout. And we know the story doesn't end here. If you were with us for for Bible study this morning, you missed out if you weren't here. We read through the entire book of Ruth and in the four short chapters that's there, and, and we looked at them, and we saw that the story doesn't end here. And we know how those mercies extend well beyond Naomi, well beyond Ruth. And when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you're still going to have tragic parts in your story. But you can be assured and know that He is working His mercies through those tragedies. Your story doesn't end with that tragedy. God's mercies are working in you well beyond your situation. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You so much. Thank You for this day that You've given to us. Thank You for the time we have to gather here to look at how when life hands us tragedies, when they are beset upon us for whatever reason, we can turn to you. We can self-examine. We can, we can look to see your grace and your mercy there. Father, I pray that as we depart from here as as followers, that you remind us of that, that, that self-examination during a tragedy is good for us. And that when we're walking with you, we need to think about an open-ended journey rather than a plotted course. That we don't choose our own adventure. You've already chosen it for us. And we just need to walk on the path you give. And Father, teach us to be faithful participants in our local church body, even when we go through tragic situations teach us as a church when we have loved ones in our congregation who are going through tragic situations to to grow in forgiveness to grow in grace and to grow in mercy and to grow in love for their sake and to honor you it's in Jesus name I pray these things